It's nice to see such a large group of God's people out this evening on a Friday evening. I know it's uh, not easy to get out on a Friday evening because the week has been long and we have lots of things to do in preparation for the Sabbath. But of all of the meetings that I attended when I was a student and was, when I was a teacher in our college in Colombia in South America, Friday evening was my favorite because uh, the week had ended and now I had a chance to unwind. And, uh, you know, this is a nice place to unwind. It's amazing how tranquil Loma Linda is on Friday, in spite of the fact that the city uh, has surrounded Loma Linda. Um, you know, as I was sitting in my car, I got here a little bit early, I was amazed to see two raccoons walk across the lawn right out here, you know, on this busy thoroughfare. I don't know if you've seen, but they, they seem to be husband and wife because they were walking just in step together. And I said, wow, you know, even the raccoons come out on Friday night <laughs> because the people are all hiding. But uh, anyway, it's nice to be here with uh, this group. What we're going to do this weekend is uh, study some very important subjects uh, relating to final events and the preparation for the coming of Jesus. I know that probably some of you have uh, seen uh, some of the presentations, perhaps all of the presentations on uh, 3ABN, uh, Cracking the Genesis Code. And because I knew that probably there were some people here who had watched Cracking the Genesis Code, I've chosen four subjects that are not in that series so that we don't have a duplication of uh, material. Before we get into our study this evening, which is titled Three Inseparable Doctrines, we want to ask the Lord's guidance. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonderful hours of your holy Sabbath. How great it is to just finish all of our endeavors, all of our work, and just bask in your presence. We ask, Father, that as we open your holy word this evening, that your Holy Spirit will come to be with us and explain that word to us and plant the seed of truth in our hearts, that that seed might germinate and it might grow and it might bear fruit in our lives. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, the titles of the uh, presentations tonight, of course, Three Inseparable Doctrines. Uh, tomorrow morning during the worship service, the title is Hidden Sabbath Truths. We're going to discuss some issues relating to the Sabbath, which I have found in no book other than Patriarchs and Prophets. And yet I'd read Patriarchs and Prophets for, for 30 years and I had never seen the things that I'm going to share with you tomorrow morning until March of, of this year when I was on my way to Panama. Um, and I'll just give you a little inkling about what we're going to discuss. Um, you know, I've always wondered why God didn't give Adam and Eve a direct command to keep the Sabbath in Genesis 2. Now, I know we can prove that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, but it would have been nice for God to, uh, I think anyway, 
for God to put there in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve, keep the Sabbath. And all of your descendants, keep the Sabbath. But there's no direct command, command in Genesis 2 where God says to Adam and Eve, keep the Sabbath. And another interesting thing of the creation story is that uh, the seventh day, according to the record, does not have an evening and a morning. And that's been, both of these arguments have been taken by Dale Retzleff uh, and others to prove that uh, the Sabbath is not a creation ordinance and that because it had no evening and morning, God's rest is open every day of the week. Uh, but uh, I believe that what I'll share with you tomorrow is, is going to be, in the good sense, revolutionary. It's going to give us very biblical, solid arguments as to why God, in fact, God could not have ordered Adam and Eve to keep that first Sabbath. God couldn't have done it. And I'm going to explain to you the reason why. Um, actually, don't get nervous. I believe that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. But actually, God did not command Adam and Eve to keep the first Sabbath, but to keep the second one. And I'll show you why. And uh, I'll also give you the reason why the evening and morning isn't mentioned. It's very, very simple, right there in Genesis, and right there in Patriarchs and Prophets. And for years and years, I've read the Bible, and I've read Patriarchs and Prophets, and I've never seen it. And uh, I've read dozens of books on the Sabbath. And... Um, you know, the only book where, where I've ever found it is in the writings of Ellen White. Um, then in the afternoon, uh, first session at 3 o'clock, I want to present a subject which is titled Reflections on Daniel 11. And um, I want to share with you a different approach to study Daniel 11. Instead of studying Daniel 11.40 to Daniel 12 and verse 2, we're going to do it in reverse order. We're going to start at Daniel 12, verse 2, and we're going to work backwards. And there's a very special reason for that. You see, Ellen White doesn't quote any of the verses from Daniel 11:40 to 45. She doesn't even use the language of those verses. So people assume that she had nothing to say about Daniel 11:40 to 45. However, she does have many quotations of Daniel 12 and verse 1 and Daniel 12 and verse 2. And so if you know where her quotations are for Daniel 12, 1 and 2, you're going to know where she's commenting on verses 40 to 45. It's a, it's, a, it's a deductive approach to Daniel 11 rather than an inductive approach to Daniel 11. And I think you're going to be, you're going to marvel at how the Bible and the spirit of prophecy are so much in harmony. You know, the more I study, the more I, I admire the spirit of prophecy because it's so much in harmony with scripture. And then uh, our final study uh, tomorrow is titled The Holy and the Common. And basically I'm going to study with you two stories from the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in the book of Revelation. The first is the story of Nadab and Abihu. And the second story is the story of Belshazzar um, when he uh, took the holy vessels and put wine and drank wine from them. Both of these stories present two different sides of one coin. And they present two, two heresies which are going to exist in the world, uh, in the Christian world, at the end of time. And uh, so we'll be discussing the holy and the common uh, in our last study uh, tomorrow afternoon, Lord willing. There are three doctrines that the Seventh-day Adventist Church holds which are inseparably linked 
or connected. These three doctrines are the state of the dead, the judgment, and the second coming of Jesus. If you get one of these wrong, you're going to get the others wrong. If you get all three of them right, you're going to be on the right track to know how Jesus will come and the preparation that we need in order to be ready for his coming. And so I would like to discuss this evening how these three doctrines are linked or interconnected, how they relate to one another. And to begin, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. This is a verse we usually use to discuss the state of the dead. And by the way, we're going to use the Bible a lot. So I hope you'll bring your Bible uh, because uh, we're going to study from Scripture and I'll have some quotations as well from the Spirit of Prophecy. Of course, this verse is speaking about the creation of man. Notice what it says. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. What, uh, what aspect of man was composed of dust? It's physical nature, right? Physical body composed of dust. Now, in the head of that body was the brain. The brain is a physical organ also, right? It controls and regulates and directs all of the activities of the body, correct? It's the command center of the body, if you please. So God created this body out of dust, this physical organism. He placed in the head of that organism a brain to coordinate all of the activities relating to the body but even after God created the body and he placed the brain in the head of that body, the body was lifeless. Notice I didn't say the body was dead. The body was lifeless. It was perfect. It had all of the or organs complete. It had everything, the brain, but it wasn't functioning. And so the last part of the verse continues saying, And breathed into his nostrils. The breath of life. Now the word breath here is the Hebrew word neshama. There's another word in Hebrew for spirit. It's the word ruach. By the way, they are interchangeable to a great degree in the Old Testament. And the reason we know that is because uh, here it says that neshama is in the nostrils. But there are other texts that say that ruach is in the nostrils as well. And we use our nostrils to what? We use our nostrils to breathe. In other words, what God did was that he energized that body. He gave the body the vital force to function. He gave it the electrical current, if you please. And then we're told, and man became a living soul or became a living person. So reviewing... God made a physical organism composed of dust. Actually, it was wet, wet dust. It was clay, according to Isaiah 64 and verse 8. God is the potter, we are the clay. He placed in the head of that body a brain. And of course, the brain was to gather all of the input 
from outside. And then he energized the body. And when he energized the body, man became a living soul or a person. Now, I'd like to ask a question that probably you already know the answer to because um, we find a text that's normally used by Adventists when we discuss the issue of death. What happens with the body when man dies? You know Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7? It says there that man returns to what? The body returns to the dust. Returns to the dust. And what happens with the spirit, with the ruach? It says that it returns to God. And as a result, what happens with the, with the individual, with the person? They cease to what? They cease to exist. Partially true that they cease to exist. Now here's the question I want to ask you. Let's take Adam. Was Adam a different person in many ways the day he died than the day that he was created? Very different. Why? Because during 930 years through his five senses he gathered a lot of input to use computer language. Let me ask you, did he have a much more complex personality and self-identity the day he died than the day that he was created? Absolutely. He had a history. He had memories, feelings, emotions, actions, words he spoke, thoughts he thought during those 930 years. All of that was input. Now here's my question. What happened... We know that his body, when Adam went to, uh, when he died, his body went and what? Disintegrated. What happened to his brain? His brain disintegrated also. What happened with the vital force which energized his body? He was unplugged. But here is my question. What happened with the 930 years of self-identity that Adam formed while he was alive when Adam died. Has anybody ever asked you that question? <laughs> Probably not. I can see by your reaction that nobody's ever asked me that question. Okay, the body disintegrated and he quit breathing. But what happened to the 930 years of self-identity that he formed while he was alive? The fact is, folks, that in heaven, God, all during the life of Adam, was keeping an exact copy of Adam in written form. Every detail of Adam's life was recorded in heaven as he lived. And when he died, God closed the book. In other words, Adam physically died, but through his records, he lived on. Are you understanding what I'm saying? 
In other words, there were actually two Adams. There was, there was the Adam, the personal Adam who was alive, and there was the copy of Adam in God's books. So when Adam died, God kept the record, the exact transcript of everything that Adam did inside and out, every word, every thought, every feeling, every emotion, every action, everything is written up there. And you know, it's interesting. Jesus is personally today in heaven. But on earth, he's in 66 books. On earth, we are personally here, but in heaven, we're written in books. So in other words, we are written where we are not personally. So when Adam died, God simply wrote the end and he closed the book. Or he closed the books, so to speak. Are you understanding then that there are actually two Adams? I'm not talking about Adam and Jesus Christ. We know that there are two Adams in that sense. But there are two Adams in the sense that Adam lived his 930 years and all during that time God was making a record of every aspect of his life. When he died, the book was closed. Even though Adam personally died, there was a perfect transcript of Adam in the heavenly records that God preserved. Now, let's notice several Bible verses that speak about the books. When the Bible speaks about the, the, the record of the life of the individual, it uses the word books in plural. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. We'll come back to this verse a little bit later on. It says here, For we must all appear... Before the judgment seat of Christ, what must we do? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now notice this. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Does God keep a record of the good things and the bad things that we've done according to this verse? Sure, because he says that someday we're going to have to stand before his tribunal and we're going to have to render him an account. Right? So he must keep a record. Notice Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. This is speaking about our words. And these verses are well known. It says there in Matthew 12, verse 36, Jesus is speaking, But I say to you that for every idle word that men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Does God keep a record of our words? What do you think? Yes? Absolutely. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So not only does God keep a record of what we've done in the body, whether it's good or bad, but He keeps a record of our words. Does He keep a record of our secret things? Our thoughts? What's inside? See, the copy in heaven not only has everything that happened outside, but it has everything that happened inside. God must have an incredible way of storing this information for every person on planet Earth. Notice Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14. 
Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Here Solomon says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every... Every what? Every secret thing, whether good or evil. You know, right now I could be, I could see Norman. Say, Norman, he's a great guy. You know, we corresponded by email, you know. And I could be saying all kinds of nice things about him, and I could be thinking the opposite. Couldn't I? I'm not. But I could. What does God record? Only the nice, beautiful things that I said about Norman? No. He records in his books the outside and he also records the inside. It says here, every secret thing. Notice Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. By the way, during the first half of my presentation, you're going to feel a lot of anxiety. But, there, but at the end of the sermon, you're going to feel very relieved and you're going to get a good night's sleep. So don't get nervous on me because you say, Oh, God is keeping a record of all this in heaven. My words, my acts, my secret things, thoughts, feelings, emotions. How many of you have things written there that you would rather not have there? Raise your hand. Some of you didn't raise your hand. You just have one now because you're lying. <laughs> Daniel 7 verses 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Do you see the word books? When the Bible uses the word books in the context of the judgment, it refers to the record of our life. It refers to the copy of us that God has in heaven. The other Steve Bohr. There's two Steve Bohrs. There's the living one here and there's the written one up there. And I'm going to show you why this is so important and how it's related to the second coming and the state of the dead. Notice Revelation 20 verses 12 and 13 as well. Even though this is speaking about after the millennium, in principle it applies to the pre-advent judgment as well. Revelation 20 verses 12 and 13. It's really music to my ears to hear those pages of the Bible turning. You know, preachers like two noises in church. Not drums, no. Uh, they love to hear the pages of the Bible turning. And an amen once in a while. By the way, you can say hallelujah too. The angels say hallelujah in heaven. So, you know, Pentecostals shouldn't have a, a monopoly on hallelujah. Notice Revelation 20, 12, and 13. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And now notice. And books were opened. 
Now notice this. And another book was opened. Do you see that there's books and book? Plural and singular? It says, and we'll come to the book in a moment. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And now notice. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. So what is it that's in the books? The works. Which means what? What you did. What you said. What you thought. What you felt. Notice what Ellen White has to say. By the way, uh, uh, Ellen White uses the example of photography. It's the best she could do. If God called a prophet today, that prophet would talk about computers. See, in biblical times it was books. But God has a much more sophisticated way of keeping records than, than writing it by hand in books. Notice what Ellen White says. This is in, in Heavenly Places, page 360. She says, As the artist takes on the polished glass a true picture of the human face, so the angels of God daily place upon the books of heaven an exact representation of the character of every human being. Powerful. In another one, uh, which we find in uh, Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery and Divorce, page 62, Ellen White says this, Remember, your character is being daguerreotyped. That's an old word for photographed. Remember, your character is being daguerreotyped by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished glass, polished plate of the artist, what do the books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern Jesus Christ? I think if Ellen White were writing today, she would probably speak about video cameras and keeping records in computers, MP3s, etc. You know, because God speaks to human beings in the language of their day. You know, he wasn't going to talk to John about keeping records uh, on CDs or an MP3, MP3s. So is it clear what the books contain? The books contain what? The record of the life without missing anything. Inside and out. Every detail. In other words, there is another Steve Bohr in heaven. Of course, my, book, my books are still being written. But like Adam, the whole 930 years to the last breath that he breathed is written in the books. By the way, it's books plural because God uh, actually classifies the different aspects of our character. In one, he has our words. In another, he has our actions. In another, he has our thoughts, according to the book, The Great Controversy. In other words, he has several books and he categorizes the different aspects of our lives. But now we need to discuss the book. You notice that there are not only books, but there's also the book, singular. Go with me to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. We'll talk now about the book. It says, uh, here the Apostle Paul is speaking about some of his fellow laborers. 
And he says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, now notice this, whose names are in the book of life. Book, singular. What is in the book, singular? Names. Names. What's in the books? The life record of the individual. Notice Revelation 3 verse 5. Whenever the Bible speaks about book, it's names that are in the book. Revelation 3 verse 5 says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out, notice this, his name from the book of life. Once again, name, book, from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation 13 verse 8, there are many texts. Let me read you two or three more. Revelation 13 verse 8, speaking about those who worship the beast, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not, whose names have not been written in the what? In the book, singular, of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You remember Moses after Israel sinned and worshipped the golden calf? God said, I'm going to destroy this people and I'm going to call another people. And you're going to be the father of that nation. What did Moses say? If you can't save Israel, blot my name out of your book. Singular. And you all know Daniel 12 and verse 1 where it speaks about a time of trouble such as never was in the history of the world. And at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. So what does the book contain? Names. Are they in alphabetical order or chronological order? I'm going to show you that they are in chronological order. I'm glad they're not in <laughs> alphabetical order. My name's, last name starts with B. But actually, I'm going to show you that the, the names in the book are in chronological order. Now, so far so good? See, I'm more of a teacher than a preacher. I repeat a lot. My wife says, you repeat too much. Uh, well... A teacher can't repeat enough. Okay, what does what do the books contain? The books. The, the exact transcript of the life. About, how about the book? Names. Very well. Now, let's notice a few other things about the judgment. How many people have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? I'm not going to read the verse again because we already read it. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. It says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. Now, the question is, where does that judgment take place where we must all appear? Where does that judgment take place? In heaven. Go with me to Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. Daniel 7, 9 and 10. We already read this passage, but let's read it again. It says here, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Where does the Ancient of Days live? Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. 
Very well. So this is taking place where the Ancient of Days is. I watched till thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Who are these? Angels. Where do the angels live? In heaven. Now notice, the court was seated and the books were opened. Where does the judgment take place? In heaven. Who must appear? Everyone. Now when does this judgment take place? At the second coming or before the second coming? Before. Go with me to Revelation 14, verse 6. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. First angel's message. Let me ask you, while the first angel's message is being proclaimed, is the door of probation open? Can people still be saved when the first angel is giving his message? Of course. Why would he give his message if nobody could be saved? Now, notice what verses 6 and 7 say. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach. So the door of probation must be open if he's preaching the gospel. To those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment will come. Actually, in Greek, it's an aorist. The hour of his judgment has come. So when does the judgment begin? Is it while the gospel is being proclaimed? Sure. Because this angel is proclaiming the everlasting gospel. And when he proclaims the everlasting gospel, he says the hour of his judgment has come. So the judgment takes place before the second coming of Jesus and before the close of probation. Because it takes place while the gospel is still being preached. Are you with me? Now what have we noticed? We all must appear. The judgment takes place in heaven. And it takes place before the second coming of Jesus. Now here comes the big question. How can we all appear... if the judgment takes place in heaven. By the way, when are we going to receive our reward? Let's read a couple of verses. Matthew 16, verse 27. You see how this is, the judgment is related to the state of the dead and to the second coming? Matthew 16, verse 27. What do most churches teach about when a person dies? If they were good, where do they go? To heaven. If they're bad, they go to hell. And if they were half bad, they go to purgatory. Right? Now, in the light of what we've studied, this simply cannot be true. Notice Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels... And what? And then he will reward each according to his works. 
Can he give a reward before he's determined the reward in a judgment previously? Of course not. So the judgment takes place before the second coming of Jesus. Notice Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Revelation 22 and verse 12. Here Jesus is speaking. And he says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. He brings the reward. Must he have determined beforehand what the reward is? Of course. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his what? To his work. So does he keep a record of our work? Of our life? Of our words? Of our thoughts? Of our feelings? Of our emotions? Of course he does. So... The big question is this. Everybody must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. They have to appear in heaven. Before the second coming of Jesus. So how do we appear in heaven before the judgment seat of Christ to render account for, an account for what we have done if we're still living on earth or as in the case of Adam, we're in the earth disintegrated. It must be that we appear before the judgment seat of Christ through the exact transcript of our life. Are you following me? Now, let's use Adam as our example. Adam died over 5,000 years ago. Where is Adam today? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows where the flood took him? He's somewhere, disintegrated. Right? Where else is Adam today? He's in heaven. Through his records. Are you following me? Now who was the first person to be judged in 1844? <laughs> nice try. It was Adam. Let me read you the statement. Great controversy. I'm going to read page 482. Listen to what Ellen White has to say. As the books of record are opened in the judgment. What is open in the judgment? The books of record. The lives of all who have believed on Jesus come in review before God. Not the wicked. Those who have claimed Christ. Do you know why, God, why he deals with the righteous? before the second coming because he has to reveal to the universe who he, ha who he has a right to take home with him there's no urgency with the wicked because they're going to be left behind as the books of record are open in the judgment the lives of all who have believed on Jesus come in review before God now notice this beginning with those who first lived upon the earth who was the first person to live upon the earth Adam our advocate presents the cases of each successive generation. So in what order does he do it? In chronological order. Beginning with the first Adam, each successive generation says, and closes with the living. She also says this, the righteous dead will not be raised until after the judgment at which they are accounted worthy of the resurrection of life. 
Hence, they will not be present in person at the tribunal when their records are examined and their case is decided. So how do they appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Through the exact transcript of their life. I'm going to share something with you which probably is going to surprise some of you at least. And that is, as Adventists we've traditionally said that the spirit of man is the breath. That's partially correct. The spirit is more than the breath. The spirit is actually the self-identity of the person that God keeps a record of in the heavenly books. Now allow me to give you some biblical references and then I'm going to read you a couple of quotations, amazing quotations from Ellen White. The first one is in Luke chapter 8 in verses 52 to 56. Don't get nervous on me. I still believe that the Spirit involves the breath, but it's much more than the breath. It is the breath along with the self-identity of the person. The life that they lived, if you please. This speaking about the death of this little girl. It says there in verse 52, Now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, Do not weep, she is not dead but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand and called, saying, Now, little words are important. If I read it wrongly, you correct me, okay? He took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise! Then the Spirit returned. Is that what it says? Thank you. It doesn't say the Spirit returned. It says her Spirit returned. And she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. Let me ask you, when she resurrected, do you think she recognized her parents? You think? Why did they give her food? Probably because when she died she was hungry. Do you think she recognized her friends? Sure. Let me ask you, what did Jesus return to this little girl? Her breath with her self-identity. Are you with me? He took the self-identity in the heavenly books and he gave it back to her. Are you following me? Now, notice Acts 7, verses 57 to 60. I'm going to corroborate this with the spirit of prophecy, by the way. Ellen White caught this. You know, She caught these things that theologians have missed. That shows me that she had more than human wisdom. Acts 7.57. Speaking about the stoning of Stephen. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive the Spirit. He didn't say receive the Spirit. He says, receive my Spirit. 
Let me ask you, is the spirit of Stephen different than the spirit of this Stephen? <laughs> yes? Is the, is the vital force, is the breath the same? Sure, the breathing power is the same. But what is different? His life versus my life. So what Stephen is saying is, Lord, preserve my self-identity in your books. Because he's saying someday you're going to return it to me. And I love the way it says here that it says, having said this, he fell asleep. It doesn't say he died. It says he fell asleep. That's a beautiful way to describe death. Isn't it? Now notice, final example from the Bible. Luke 23, verse 46. Luke 23, verse 46. This is speaking about Jesus when he died on the cross. It says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I command the Spirit. No. He says, Into your hands I commend my Spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. What was Jesus saying to his Father? Into your hands I commend my spirit. He was saying, Father, you've, you promised that if I was faithful, on the third day, you were going to what? Resurrect me. So he says, Father, in your hands, I'm, I'm placing my spirit for you to safeguard my spirit, my self-identity. Did Jesus recognize his disciples when he resurrected? Did he remember all of the episodes that had taken place during his life with the disciples? So what did God return to Jesus? What did the Father return to Jesus? Only the breathing power? No! The breathing power attached to his self-identity. In other words, your spirit becomes personalized, if you please. Now allow me to read you a statement from Ellen White. A couple of statements. This is an amazing statement. Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1093. She says, Our personal identity, our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection. Though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. He preserves our self-identity, but it doesn't mean he gives us the same particles of matter that we had in this life. Because Ellen White says that God is going to give us a body that is composed of much finer material. Amen. I like that, finer material. She continues saying, The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. And here comes the key portion of the quotation. She says, The spirit, comma, the character of man, comma, is returned to God there to be preserved. Did you catch that? What is preserved? The character. That means you are preserved in the heavenly records. There is another you in heaven. So she says the spirit, the character of man is returned to God there to be preserved. In the resurrection every man will have his own character. How many of you would like to receive the same character that you have now? 
<laughs> oh, yeah. I know some of you are thinking, ooh, there's some things of my character I wouldn't like to have back. Well, I have some good news as we study along. She continues saying, God in his own time will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again, bearing the same individuality of features so that friend will recognize friend. There is no law of God in nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter which compose the body before death. God shall give the righteous dead a body that will please him. By the way, this helps us explain a passage which, you know, when I, read, when I used to read it, I'd say, man, Job's, Job gives the impression that he's going to be the only one who's going to resurrect. Go with me to Job 19, 25 to 27. I'm going to read it from the NIV because it's, it's more forceful. And it's correct. Job 19, 25 to 27. Job sounds a little bit kind of selfish here almost, that he's going to be the only one who's going to resurrect. But that's not really what he's saying. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth... And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. So Job is the only one who's going to see Him. What is Job really saying? He's saying when I resurrect, it's going to be me. Are you catching the point? Now, allow me to read you another statement. This is about the wicked after the millennium. This is found in Great Controversy, page 664. Great Controversy 664. Ellen White is speaking about those outside the holy city. And she says this, There are kings and generals who conquered nations. Valiant men who never lost a battle. Proud, ambitious warriors whose approach made kingdoms tremble. Now notice this. In death, these experienced no change. As they come up from the grave, they resume the current of their thoughts just where it ceased. Are you understanding what Ellen White is saying here? She's saying that if somebody, if, if there's this general in a battle who opened his mouth and, you know, he was saying a word and half the word came out and they, they shot him and only half the word came out when he resurrects, he's going to complete the word. That's what she's saying. Why? Because when God resurrects the wicked, He is going to give them the exact transcript of their lives till the very micro second in which they died. It's amazing. Now, allow me to illustrate what I mean. How many of you have ever seen that little clip of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the Sapruder film? You've seen that, right? 
You know, you see the limo, it's coming around the corner onto Elm Street towards the grassy knoll. And, uh, you know, John Kennedy is waving to everybody and Jacqueline is there in her pink dress and she's, you know, waving to everybody and everybody wants to get a glimpse of the president. Let me ask you, when you saw that little clip of film, was John F. Kennedy alive or dead? See, I ask this question purposely because I always get both answers. He was alive and he was dead. The fact is, folks, that what you are watching is a film of John F. Kennedy when he was alive. But you are watching the movie after he's dead. Now listen up. There is a certain sense in which those who have died will appear before the judgment seat of Christ alive. Are you understanding my point? They will appear there alive because the movie of their life was taken while they were alive. Only it's being watched after they died. Are you following me? So the dead actually appear there in person and they appear before the judgment seat of Christ alive. Only it's being watched after they're dead. Amazing. Now, allow me to explain how the process transpires. It's October 22, 1844. And um, Jesus, I'm dramatizing for effect. Jesus says, Who is the first person to appear before the judgment? An angel brings out the book with the order of the names. Adam, present yourself before the judgment seat of Christ. Where is Adam? Dead and decomposed. So what do the angels do? Let's bring the DVD. And so they bring the records of Adam's life. And they show the records, by the way, you don't think Ellen White knew a little bit more about technology, the technology, than just books? Have you ever read about the panoramic view above the holy city after the millennium? That's Cinerama, folks. She's ahead of her time. Because she's talking about in panoramic view, we'll be seeing the whole history of the human race. From the time that Adam was created, on through history, the Old Testament, she says, the, the sufferings of Christ, the period of the Middle Ages when the church was persecuted till the very end of time, she says, in panoramic view. By the way, that's television. That's, that's the movies before they existed. In other words, we're going to see the whole history of the human race repeated before our view. So does God have a more sophisticated method of gathering information than what we've assumed? You know, we usually assume that, that God just, you know, the angels are writing. And I know that Ellen White says that the angels are writing, but Ellen White is speaking in terms that the people of her day could understand. The fact is that God keeps an exact transcript. He keeps records. He keeps a DVD of our lives. By the way, you could use this illustration. You know, the other day, I took out my video camera. 
the videotape had been in there for two years. Since the mission trip that we took to Panama. And there were and, and our gray cat, which is a great big tomcat, was doing some real silly things in the front yard. And so I went out and I took some movies of him. Now, when I looked at that when I looked at that uh, movie or at that video, how much of a time lapse was there between the Panama trip and the gray cat? Was there any gap? There was no gap. It, you know, you could have never known that there were two years in between. Do you know that's actually what happens when a person dies? God turns the video camera off. And then when he resurrects you, he turns the video camera on and he continues videotaping. Are you with me? And so Adam appears through his records before the judgment seat of Christ. How many of you believe that Adam has some pretty nasty things on his records? You think? Oh, yeah. Starting with his sin of listening to his wife. Don't feel so great, guys. At least Edom was, Eve was deceived. Adam loved Eve more than he loved God. That was the real sin of Adam. He loved Eve more than he loved God. Eve was his idol. Because anything that takes the place of God is idolatry. Yeah. Terrible sin. And so, Adam had that and many other things on many other blotches on his record. So, so when his records are open in heaven and they see the DVD, on the DVD are what? Not only all the good things he did, but all of the bad things he did. But there's something, something wonderful about Adam. And that is that in the record is revealed that whenever he sinned, he repented of sin, he confessed it, and he presented it to Jesus as his intercessor in the sanctuary. And it was introduced into the sanctuary, into his record, covered by the blood. Are you with me? And so every sin that Adam committed is registered there, but along with the sin, Ellen White says that it is written, forgiven through the blood of the Lamb, because it was repented of and it was confessed. And do you know what Jesus is going to do as the record of Adam transpires? You delete that. Delete that. Delete that. So that when God finished with the record of Adam, he had a clean record for Adam. And that's what he's going to return to him. Minus all of the sins that through the grace of Christ he repented of, he confessed, and he overcame. 
You know, there are people today in the Adventist church who say, Oh, you Adventists, you can never have the assurance of salvation because you believe that Jesus is putting our sins in the sanctuary. Let me tell you something. Our greatest assurance is to have our sins in the sanctuary because if they're not there, they are here. Just make sure that they go in there through the blood of Jesus. Then when your record comes up, you don't have to have anything to worry about. No problem. They're written there, but next to them is written, forgiven through the blood of the Lamb. They better be in there, because if they're not in there, they're here. And God will be looking at your records after the millennium, if they're here. So our greatest assurance is to have our sins covered by the blood in the heavenly sanctuary. It's not a threat, it's a blessing. By the way, in the daily service, the sinner was cleansed. In the yearly service, the sanctuary was cleansed. But the sanctuary was only cleansed from the sins that had entered there through the blood. Are you with me? You know, sometimes I ask this question, does blood cleanse or does blood defile? And I always get it, two answers. Some say it defiles, some say it cleanses. The fact is that when I confess my sins, the blood cleanses me, but it defiles the sanctuary. Are you with me? And that's the reason why in the judgment, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to, he's going to purge my records in heaven of the sins that have entered there through the blood of Jesus. He's going to cleanse the sanctuary from the sins of his people. That's good news. I'm going to give you an illustration so that we understand everything that we've studied tonight. I'm sure that all of you being university students, most of you are teachers, um, are very well versed in computers. So I'm going to use the computer as an illustration. I want you to imagine that the computer is like a like the body, okay? The computer is a physical, it's a material uh, thing, isn't it? Computer. Does a computer have a brain? So to speak. Does it? Well, it has a processor, doesn't it? That controls all of the aspects that, that uh, you know, and you input into the computer, right? Do you need a power source for the computer for the computer to function? Yes. So a computer is similar to a human being. By the way, do you know that an automobile is simply a counterfeit human being? Does an automobile breathe? Yes, it does. <laughs> does it move? Does it go? Yes, it does. Does it have an exhaust? <laughs> it does. Does it have eyes to see at night? Yeah, it has lights. Does it have legs, so to speak? No, it has wheels. But the, you look at the principle it, uh, on which an engine works, you know, needing a carburetor and needing a breathing mechanism and needing fuel. It's simply a, a very poor counterfeit of the human body. But anyway, the computer is like our body. 
The brain of the computer is like our brain, where you can input stuff. The plugging into the computer is like God giving the breath of life to the body of the individual. Now, two of you go to Best Buy and you buy the identical same computer today. Let me ask you, a year from now, is it the same computer? Of course not. Why not? Because each one of the computers has a self-identity, so to speak, depending on what you have inputted. Is that true also of human beings? Everybody's different depending on what they've inputted through their five senses? Absolutely. No doubt whatsoever about it. Now, what would happen if when you're gone, the roof of your house caves in and your computer is smashed to smithereens? Wow. Lost everything, right? Not necessarily. See, smart people have a backup disk where they save the identity of the computer. Right? Save all of the information from the computer. Let me ask you, if your computer is smashed to smithereens, could you go to the store and buy an even better computer and give that computer the same self-identity that the first computer had? Of course. All you have to do is input it in the new computer. That's what God is going to do with us. He knows that unless Jesus comes, excluding those who are alive when Jesus comes, they're going to disintegrate. But he's saved a backup disk. Because someday he's going to give us a new computer. And he's going to give it the breath of life. He's going to plug it in. And he's going to give it a more powerful brain. But he's going, to, he's going to input the same information that was in the first computer. Minus all of the things that he has deleted. As my name has gone through the heavenly records. You know, it's really fantastic to think that, that God, you know, when, when my name comes up in the judgment. And all of the universe is watching everything. Up there, the devil is, you know, accusing. Ah, he's mine. He did this and he did that and did the other thing. And my name is appearing. And God says, you know, and God, God has this DVD in his huge master computer. And as my sins appear, it says, oh, covered by the blood. Delete. There's a delete key in the computer, right? So he goes through. He says, delete, 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 delete that. And when he finishes with my life record, I have a perfect character. Because all of the evil things have been dele deleted. Because I have repented and confessed my sin. And Jesus has become my surety and my substitute. Now if that isn't good news... I don't know what good news is. See, I can go home and I can sleep well knowing that if I should die tonight, I've repented of sin, I've confessed sin, and it's covered by the blood of Jesus. And I don't have to have any fear about appearing before the judgment seat of Christ through my records. 
Because in the judgment, it is He who is going to stand in my place. That's good news. So these three doctrines are very closely linked. Why can't the churches today, the non-Adventist churches, accept the idea of the judgment? Because they believe that people go to heaven or hell when they die. So why would God examine the records of someone who's already in heaven? Why would he even bother to examine the records of somebody he sent to hell when he died? See, only the Adventist view correctly links the state of the dead, the judgment, and the second coming of Jesus. Because, listen, if, both, if people went to heaven or to hell when they died, what is Jesus coming back for? Why would he even bother to have a judgment if people have already gone to heaven or to hell? Their destiny's already decided. No need for a judgment. So these three doctrines are inseparably linked one to another. And if we have one wrong, we'll have the others wrong. And we have a message to give to the world, folks. You know, people need to know that, that their names are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, most Christians, they say, Oh, we've passed from death unto life. Once saved, always saved. The perseverance of the saints, so-called. Many are believing that they're going to be raptured out of this earth before the tribulation. And when they're caught in the midst of the tribulation, they won't have the faith to go through it because they didn't think they were going to go through it. So as Adventists, we, we need to share these things with, with the Christian world so that they see the importance of claiming Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord, the importance of repentance, the importance of confession, the importance of forgiveness, the importance of victory over sin, as it relates to the judgment, as it relates to the second coming of Jesus. Because, folks, the time is coming very soon when those words are going to be pronounced, when Jesus finishes the judgment of all those who claim the name of Jesus, He's going to say, he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. See, that has to do with cleansing the sanctuary, doesn't it? See, while he's cleansing the sanctuary in heaven, he wants to cleanse the temple of our soul. Because he's not going to cleanse anything up there that he hasn't cleansed down here. And so I pray to God that as we've studied this, that it's not only academic, we understand better the idea of the judgment and the state of the dead and the second coming, but that... Each one of us personally will come closer to Jesus and will send our sins to the sanctuary to be covered by Jesus. You know, there was once a psychiatrist who said if people were simply able to accept the idea of forgiveness, half of them could leave the nut house tomorrow. Guilt! is one of, the, one of the things that causes the greatest psychiatric problems. I have an uncle, I'll finish with this, I have an uncle who lives in, in Pasadena. He's my father's brother. My father was a pastor of the Adventist Church for 41 years and my uncle claims to be an atheist. Not always was he an atheist. He was a teacher at the College of Medical Evangelists here in Loma Linda, Vernon Bohr. In fact, I have a church member who was a student of his, Dr. Elton Morrell. And uh, he, he, for, for a, quite a while, he was, he was a good Adventist. 
But then, I won't tell you the whole story, step by step, he started going astray. He studied at UCLA under, under uh, you know, took some philosophy classes. And he got all caught up in, in Martin Heidegger and all these existentialist philosophers. And he lost his way. And uh, one day I went to his house and he, point, he has this great big Buddha standing in the corner of, uh, of his living room. And the Buddha has a, a cup of wine in one hand and has a plate full of food on the other. He says, that's the God of this house. He says, the God of pleasure. And he makes fun of religion. It's, it's kind of difficult to, to go to his house. But one day... He was talking to my mom. And he says, you know, besides being, you know, he taught physiology here. But then he studied psychiatry at UCLA. And now he really needs one. (laughs) But he said to my mom, you know, in the 30 plus years that I've practiced psychiatry, I've never healed anyone. My mom looked at him and said, what? Why are you practicing then? <laughs> and he said, let me tell you why I haven't fe- healed anyone. He says, because people that come, they don't want to be healed. What they want someone to do is to calm their conscience so that they can continue living the way they live. Isn't that pretty much true in the religious world today? I think it's true, not only in in the general religious world, but also among many in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know, we we want to have our our conscience soothed rather than awakened. So I pray to God that, uh, that we will come to the cross and that we will claim Jesus as our Savior, as our intercessor, as our Lord, as our substitute. And then go home and have a good night's sleep. How about it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of studying this awesome subject tonight. I ask, Father, that if there's anyone here who has not sent his or her sins to the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, I ask that at this very moment that person might do so the secret recesses of their minds and in their hearts. Father, we come boldly to the throne of grace. We bring our sins, our weaknesses, all of the things that we do which are contrary to your law, which are contrary to the character of Jesus. We bring those things to the sanctuary and we ask, Father, that you will forgive us, that you will accept us in the Beloved. We thank you, Father, for having been with us and for the assurance that we can have eternal life even now through Jesus Christ. Bless us now as we return to the places where we live. Give us a good night's rest. We thank you, Father, for having been with us. We pray these things in the precious name of your beloved Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.